Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're gonna just dive in with a, just a just a thought about Adam. It's, this was new information to me. The 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 Medrash says that um, see Hashem says and and Hashem God said, behold, man has become like the unique one among us, um, knowing good and bad. Now here's the key part, and now lest he put his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God banished him from the Garden of Eden. Right. So, interestingly, it says, and God banished him from the Garden of Eden. It doesn't, it doesn't mention Chava. Isn't that interesting? It just says him. So that's a, that's a whole uh, interesting subject in itself. But, but anyway... You should know, um, one of the things that, that's so beautiful about Shabbos is, Shabbos is a, we say, a kind of a re-entry into the Garden of, of Eden. That every, every, every week you're able to go back to the Garden of Eden. We, we say it's, a, you know, a fraction of it, but nonetheless, you're, you get a chance to go back in. And um, so there's still part of us that, that's never left. And I heard from Rabbi David Aaron something amazing. He says that in the end of days when everything becomes fixed, we'll realize that we never left, that we were always there. Isn't that interesting? So, so anyway, so, so much of life, I, I heard Rabbi Green say one time, 99% of life is, is in your head. Like, how you choose to go through life. How you... The results aren't in our hands, but how we react to them is in our hands. So if someone actually has a positive attitude, even if they have a crummy life, they can actually have a positive life, right? Because ultimately you get to decide what kind of life that you're having. It, it's, this is endlessly deep. That's endlessly deep. That, that you essentially get to decide the life that you're having. Because everything goes according to your perception. So there's a classic Hasidic story like this, where someone's life was falling apart, and they said, go, I think it was the Maggid of Mezrich, I'm not sure, but he was the one giving the advice. He says to this person who's in trouble, he says to him, go and see uh, Reb Zusha. A very famous story. So Reb Zusha was known to be the poorest, 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 like he didn't have two things to rub together. Nothing. He had nothing. So... The man finds Reb Zusha, and he says to him, uh, you know, I was sent to you to, to learn how to deal with misery, basically. And Reb Zusha said back to him, what are you talking about? He said, I have a great life. <laughs> and that, that, that was the thing. Again, but, 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 but the thing is, Reb Zusha actually did think he had a great life. That, that is the amazing part of that story. He wasn't playing games. Because why, you know, when I was growing up, one of the, uh, I think, public service uh, announcements, like phrases that you heard all the time were, the best, thing in, the best things in life are free. That was one of those phrases that, that we grew up with. And it, it's, you know, it sounds like a nice thought, but you actually can live life like that. There, it's, it's possible to live life like that, where... As, as I heard Rabbi Green say one time, when you open up your eyes in the morning, you win. <laughs> You've already won. At that moment, you win. Right? Just by 
virtue of the fact that you get to participate in life. So, so there's a story I heard from Reb Shlomo, and I haven't got any of the names or facts right. I'm just giving you a, my, my impressionistic memory of the story. But it goes like this. St. Petersburg, I'm pretty sure it was St. Petersburg, there was a law against Jews spending the night in the city. If you were Jewish, you couldn't sleep in the city. So anyway, this um, very poor Jew won a lottery, which is like a big deal. But in order to redeem the the prize, you had to go to St. Petersburg. So he couldn't sleep in St. Petersburg, so he had to um, to sleep someplace else. But anyway, I don't remember all the details. But the point is, is that he's able to get this huge cash prize, like a lot, a lot of money. And I remember Rip Shlomo said that he's, he has all the money in his pockets and every two steps he's walking, he's patting his pants to make sure it's still there, <laughs> right? So it's like, it's like a big deal. And he, back then they didn't have banks. Um, so you, maybe they had banks, but they weren't so common for like, you know, like the, the, the peasants. So, so you, you would stay with someone trusted, and a lot of times you would stay at the rabbi's house, and the rabbi would hold whatever valuables you had overnight or over Shabbos or whatever it was. So he's staying with this particular rabbi, and he has two bags of money. One has almost all the money in it. It's something like, I don't know, whatever it is, thousands and thousands and thousands. It's all in, in that one bag. And he stuffed it to its, the top, and then he had another bag with just a, a few coins left over in that, right? So, so anyway, he goes to redeem the money from, from him. And the, the rabbi gives him, you know, is giving him the money. And he, he, he reaches and he gets the large sack, right? And he hands him the large sack. And then the man looks at him very suspiciously and he says, what about the rest? And he said, you know, I, I just gave you all of that. Do you think I'm going to cheat you out of the rest? But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, he then goes to, to go, go on to say that when we wake up in the morning, right, by virtue of the fact that our soul is returned to us and our eyes open, we are given this giant sack of money, essentially, like that we're given our life back to us. And then the first thought is like, and God, what about the rest? <laughs> and God is saying, I just gave, am I going to withhold the good from you? Don't you see that I've just given you this? Why would I withhold the good from you? So, so again, our, 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 our perception is, is, is the most valuable thing that we have. It's kind of funny. It's kind of funny because, you know, as many, many people have observed, most people go through life saying, when I get this, then I'll be happy. When I'll get, you know, the car, the house, the wife, the husband, the kid, the job, whatever it is, then I'll be happy. And we do ourselves a great disservice and a great injustice by going through life like that. Because we can be happy right now. We literally have the ability to outsmart life. (laughs) It's kind of funny. 
And then everything else is bonus, everything else is gravy. Okay, it's not easy to do. No one's saying that's easy to do. But let's just at least recognize the fact that that's possible and that that's the, that that's the greater truth. Right? So, you know, one of the things that they... One of the things that um, they do with uh, greyhound dogs, they have dog races. I don't know how common or popular they are anymore, but greyhound dogs are very fast. And what they do is to get them to, to, to race very, very fast is they put a little rabbit in front of them or a, maybe it's a stuffed animal of a rabbit or whatever it is, and they're running after the rabbit <laughs> the whole time. And at a certain point, like some... Greyhounds say they slow down. You know why? Because at a certain point, after who knows how many races, they go, I'm never going to get the rabbit. <laughs> why am I bothering? And then they know, okay, we've got to pull that guy out. We can't, he can't race for us anymore. But what if you already have the rabbit? What if you already have the rabbit? And you're running after the rabbit. So what are you running after the rabbit if you already have the rabbit? But you've got to be told that you have the rabbit because it's not intuitive. It's not intuitive because we think our happiness is constantly outside of us. That's, that's the thing. So, so there's this, this moment, this very, very epic moment where Hashem says, and, and, and now, lest he put his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So this is, this is a bit tricky. That's, um, by the way, chapter 3, uh, the middle of verse 22, if you want to look at that. Um, so the rabbis are keying in on this word now. Ata is how you would say it in Hebrew. Ata, not with an aleph, which means you, but ata with an ayin, which means now. And, and, and so Hashem is saying to Adam, and now... And the rabbis say, wait a second, this word atta is not a simple word, again, with an ayin, this word now, because there's a very, very famous verse in the Torah that uses this word atta. So what is that verse? So this is from Rab Abba Bar Kahana in Medrash Rabbah, chapter 21, uh, section 6. The verse says, and now, Israel, what does Hashem ask of you? Only to fear Hashem your God, to go in all of His ways. That's in Devarim ten twelve. Okay, so there you see, and now is related to tshuva, to return of God, right? Because it's saying that that what does God want from you right now? Just that you should follow Him, right? So, so the rabbis say, okay, you see that the word from that context, you see that the word ata. And now, what does God want from you? That you should follow him. That whenever you see the word atta, it's talking about tshuva. So therefore, when God said to Adam, and now, he was opening up a portal for tshuva for Adam to return at that moment after having eaten from the Eitzhadas, from the Tree of Knowledge. And now this is the tragic part. The next word is pen, 
Okay? So pen is, it's usually translated in, in English, in like this old Englishy way, lest, L-E-S-T. Lest I, but it means no. That's a fancy old English way of saying no. So, so Hashem says, Atta, now, like here's your opportunity right now, because all of life, basically, this is another big secret to life, all of life basically is only a series of nows. Right? Because you, as soon as the clock ticks, you've already lost the past. And the, pres- the future isn't here yet. So the only thing you ever actually have in your possession is now, is the moment. That's it. So all of life, all of history, all of everything is only a succession of nows. And all of the past was only a succession of nows. And only all of the future will only be a succession of nows. So you see, there is no even past or even future. All there ever was was nows. I, I, I heard uh, this phrase. My wife heard it from a friend of hers who was saying it from her father, but I, I love it. It's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to do the right thing. Why? Because all there is and all there ever was and all there ever will be is now. So that's why the rabbis say very deeply in Perke Avos, if not now, when? Because if not now, it's only going to be another now. So when is that now going to be? See, the thing is, is that when we, once we, once we delude ourselves into thinking that there's this thing called the future, then we can sort of write it off. I don't know. It's in the future. But if you understand that the future is only more nows, <laughs> then you don't, you, you can't, it's always going to be a now. You're either going to do it or you're not going to do it. So you can say, I don't know, or I'm trying, or it's hard for me. But it's a nice acid test for a person to say to themselves, any, the next time you put something off, a phone call, an email, whatever it is, a conversation, the next time you put something off, ask yourself, if not now, when? Because all you're going to be confronted with is more nows. So Hashem says to Adam, Ata, meaning now, he says to him, now, and the next word after now in the Torah is pen, and pen means last, pen means no. So the rabbis say that Adam said back to Hashem, no, or 
not now. <laughs> right? Because the previous word was ata, which means now, and then you have pen, which means no. So either no can mean just no, or no now, or not now. So this is a bit of, you know, like, okay, so what's going to be? Yeah, so again, this is chapter 3 in Breshis, Genesis, the middle of verse 22. Now, I found something super cool that I was excited about because it seemed to me like when I first started learning this, and by the way, this is a much larger subject, like why did Adam say pen? Why did he say no? Right? This, we have to know the answer to this. But we can't go into that now because it's not clear. It's, it's, I think there's probably a lot of answers is the, is the, is the thing. But I don't want to just ramble. I, I want to actually have something concrete for you before we get into why, Hashem said, why, why Adam said pen, why he said no. But I did do this much work, which was I said to myself, if Adam is saying this word pen, no, to God at this moment, right? This word pen must be a giant word. So I, I, I looked and I said, well, what's the gematria of the word pen, right? At least let's start there. And it's 130 because pay is 80 and nun is 50. So 50 and 80 is 130. So, but then I realized this other like amazing thing and, and we can transition subjects after I finish this point. If you skip ahead to, in Breshis in Genesis chapter 5, uh, verse, verse 3. It says that after Adam ate from the tree and they were banished from the Garden of Eden, okay, that Adam separated from his wife for 130 years. And during that time he was doing tshuva. And then after 130 years, they got back together and they had Shes, or in English you say Seth. And the Jewish people are descended from Seth. Okay, so so basically this is when Adam kind of returned back into the fold. Back, He got it back together again. Now did you hear what I just said there? When Adam had lived 130 years... He had Seth. He got back together with Chava and he had Seth. 130 is the gematria of the word pen. No. In other words, and this, this is the Torah itself. The Torah itself is a, says after 130 years. So in other words, I, I would suggest that pen, which, is, which meant no, which is 130, Adam did tshuva for saying the word pen, for saying the word no. Pen, which is 130, did 130 years of tshuva to uproot this no that he had said to God. I mean, it's so exact. It's so exact, and I haven't seen this written anywhere. It's so exact. So, besides that's just sort of being cool, right? What it, what it says to me is look how many levels, again, the Torah is working on. That when the Torah is like giving you words, it's also giving you 
numbers and blueprints and, and flowcharts about history and where everything is going. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, I remember reading in high school in, in, on the op-ed page in the New York Times, this spy master was talking about how they had found this spy, right? This, and, then, and they said, but there's a rule in the CIA, right? Which is that if you find one, you have to know how many more out there that are out there that you haven't found, right? So, by the way, when, when networks, TV networks get it, a, a letter saying that, I really like this show, or I really hate this show, or I was really offended by this, that handwritten letter counts for thousands and thousands of other voices, because that means that someone felt strong enough, strongly enough to write, but how many other people felt you know, the same way, but didn't bother to, to write. So when they get a, a few letters, and now, that was back in the day before email that I heard that. So how much more so now, when no one writes a handwritten letter to the network, I mean, you've got to be like a crackpot to do that, you know, today, you know? Uh, like, what does that represent, right? How, how, how strongly someone feels. So... So in other words, when you see the, the exactitude of Penn saying no, and then the hundred and years, 30 years of tshuva, which everyone says that Adam did, and that it exactly correlates with him saying no to God, it just makes your mind like explode. What else is going on in terms of, you know, the gematria of the Torah? And the exactness of the Torah and how many levels are going on in the Torah. This is why we this is why we study it day and night for thousands and thousands of years. This is why we, we won't let go of it. Because clearly there's a divinity to the to the text. And or as I like to say, it's the infinite compressed into the finite, right? So every once in a while Hashem gives us little reminders, or gives me anyway, little reminders. You know, just like every single word. That's why they say, you know, when you get to these genealogy things, which, you know, you know, scream out to be skipped over. <laughs> like, please, read over. Just turn the page, please, you know. But, but I, the, 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 the Rambam talks about how, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so is as important as anything else in the entire Torah, as the, as the most crucial phrase in the entire Torah. Why? Because, you know, so much is being compacted in these things. Okay. So, so with this in mind, I just want to transition um, to, to the whole story of, of, of Yaakov and, and, and Esav and, and getting the brocha and, and just what's the relationship between these two twins? So, so you have to understand that the primacy of, of who Yaakov is among the Jewish people. So you have, you know, the, the forefathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, right? And in fact, I'll just tell you something cool, something that I, I kind of occurred to me at some point. You know, in Shimon Esrei, the Amida, we say, Blessed are you, God, and God of our forefathers. And then we say, Elokei Avraham, God of Avraham. Elokei Yitzchak, God of Yitzchak. Now listen, it changes. Ve adds the word, the letter vav. Ve Elokei Yaakov, and the God of 
of Yaakov. So Eloke Avraham, Eloke Yitzchak, Ve Eloke Yaakov. Right? So it's a big unit, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Right? It's a big unit. But we throw in this letter Vav before Yaakov. So look how everything is contained within the Aleph of Avraham. Okay? Remember how we were describing the letter Aleph? Aleph is, it's actually composed of three letters. It's a Yud above, and then it's a, a Vav diagonally, and then a Yud below. So look, within the Aleph, Aleph is the first letter of the name Avraham. Within the letter Aleph, which stands for Al- Avraham, you have the upper Yud, which is Yitzchak. Then you have the Vav, V, and the lower Yud, Yaakov. <laughs> Do you see? So within the Aleph of Avraham, you have Yitzchak, V, Yaakov. So everything, it's like everything is worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds, right? It's, it's phenomenal. So, but, but on the outward level, when we talk about Yaakov, we talk about this culmination. This culmination of everything that Avraham and Yitzchak put into the world all culminates in Yaakov. And on the simple level, it's not so simple, but on the simple level... It's because this energy, this revelation of God's oneness in, this, in the world. Remember, what, what are the whole Jewish people about? What, what's the whole point of the Jewish people, right? Um, the whole point of the Jewish people in this world is that we're supposed to be revealing the oneness of God. That's it. That, that's, that's what all of this is about. Just very simple. You, everyone can go home now. <laughs> we're, that's all we're trying to do. We're, we're, we're just trying to say, hey, look around. There aren't many powers in this world. It's not your God against my God. It's that there's only one God in the world. That's it. There's only one God. There's only one power. And we're all brothers and sisters. And God loves us. And let's get along. And that's what it is. That's, that's the whole message right there. And then we get certain mitzvahs in order to reveal that oneness in different ways and things like that. But that's, that's, that's the simplicity of it all. But when did this idea of the Jewish people, of this sort of portal for revealing God's oneness on an ongoing basis, become solidified? With Yaakov. Okay? Avraham brings the light into the world. And remember, by the way, another important fact and I heard this from Rabbi Steinsaltz, um, which is that Avraham was not the first person to say, hey, there's one God. All these other things. No, don't believe in idols. It's, there's only one God. That was not Avraham. It was known in the world from the time of Adam, but it was forgotten and it was covered over. Okay? Meaning all the, basically, you know, the way the Rambam says it is that there's, imagine a king, and a king has ministers who walk before him that lend honor to the king, right? Because you see this royal procession, and you go, wow, look how fancy they are. Who are they in front of? Wow, they're just escorting the king? The king must be amazing, right? So the, the people who are in front of the king just lend more honor to the king. That's the idea, okay? So what people said was, hey, look, 
There's only one God. We know that from the time of Adam. That's like, that's obvious. But look at the sun and the stars and the rain and the plants and the trees and the crops. These are all the ministers of God. And they, they, they precede God. And they lend honor to God. So since they are honored representatives of God, let's give them honor as well. But then they started to forget about God. And they were so busy honoring the ministers of God, the, the in-betweens, right, that, that they forgot about God. And now all of a sudden it seemed like there were many powers in the world. There's the power of the stars, and there's the power of the sun, and there's the power of the moon, and the power of the rain. And let's make sacrifices to them individually. Okay. And then along comes Abraham, and he goes, No! No! There's only one God. So, in other words, again, Abraham restored the knowledge of the oneness of God. He was the great restorer of that information, right? Okay. But, but, but his greatness was no one told him. That, that was his greatness, or an aspect of his greatness. No one told him, because it had been so covered over that he had to realize it on his own. That, that was the amazing thing, okay? And then was willing to die for that over and over and over again. That, that's the incredible thing. Um, so, so, but the thing is, is that Abraham has, has, has children who aren't Jewish. He also has Yitzchak. Yitzchak has Esav, who is not Jewish. And then he had, but he has Yaakov. Yaakov has children that are only Jewish. And at that moment, no matter who you are or what you are, if your mother's Jewish, you're Jewish, and that's the end of it. That's the end of the discussion. You're living a moral life, you're living, you know, a life that can be improved. Whatever it is, that status of the Jewish people gets locked in through Yaakov. And there's a permanence that happens. That's that's again, we we because it's 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 hard to understand why is Yaakov so so much better than than Avraham or Yitzchak, right? Why is he considered the choice of the Avos? But this is like a major reason why. Okay, there it's deeper than that, by the way. But that's that's just something to know. Okay, so. So when does that happen? When does that happen that, that Yaakov, so to speak, gets locked in? When does that happen? And a lot of it happens when he gets the, when he gets the brocha from Yitzchak. Because basically, Yitzchak is, is at this moment where he can channel all of the holy energy from Avraham and himself, his own life, because he's at the end of his own life, he can send it in one direction or another direction. He can either send it to Esav, or he can send it to Yaakov. Right? So it's this climactic moment in history. In which direction is it going to flow? So, amazingly... To, a, to, to, to the point where we're wondering about this since the moment it happened. 
why would Yitzchak want to give it to Esav? And when we talk about Esav over the next you know, few minutes, I, I want to just make an introduction to a discussion of Esav, okay? You have two aspects to Esav. You have Esav, which is the idea of Esav, and you have Esav, who is the person, right? And I think that if you want to study Torah in the deepest way possible, and, and, and we all do, I think that you have to be mindful of that distinction between Esav as a spiritual idea and Esav as a human being. And by the way, that should be along with all the people in the Torah, right? Because a lot of times we get so locked into the notion of what um, a particular figure stands for that we lose sight of their humanity. And when we lose sight of their humanity, we don't fully appreciate how hard they had to work to become the spiritual idea that we freely discuss them as, right? Like, for instance, let me give you an example. And I just learned this. I heard this from, from um, Rabbi Shlomo Katz in the name of the Sanzu Rebbe. I didn't know this. That apparently, according to the Sanzu Rebbe, Avraham was incredibly stingy. Like, what? <laughs> Avraham is the most generous person that ever lived. Everybody knows that. He's the embodiment of chesed. But, but according to the Sanzer, who's like one of our holiest rebbies ever, and maybe he has a source, I don't know, Avraham was born stingy. But, but then again, this, this is, you have the spiritual ideal, which is that Avraham embodies chesed, kindness. But then you have the human level of Avraham, which is that he had to overcome a negative trait to become the spiritual ideal that he's known as. And furthermore, probably the reason why he's known as the embodiment of kindness is because he had to overcome and work hard to become the embodiment of kindness. Do, do you understand? No one gets to that, that level of being the buzzword for a certain trait unless they had to work very hard to become the embodiment of that particular trait. So what happens is, is that when we lose sight of the humanity of the, diff- of the different figures of the Torah, and we just focus in on the buzzword spiritual sort of like, um, you know, code word that they stand for, right? A lot of times, and this is getting more subtle right now, we excuse our own selves from the work that we have to do in our lives. See, because, because, oh yeah, Abraham is kindness. No, wait, how hard did he have to work to become kindness? How hard do I have to work to overcome whatever negative traits I have? You're just skipping to the end when the whole thing is about the work. Okay, so, so with that introduction, let's get back to Asaph. Esav, as a spiritual ideal, represents ultimate, negati- ultimate negativity. He stands for the Yetzirah, the negative inclination. He's like a bad dude. Like, spiritually speaking, he's a bad dude. He's synonymous with a Malik and the Sutton and, and everything bad, everything negative. Right? 
But then you have this, this person, Asav, which exhibits certain traits in, in, the, in the Torah itself, which seem to, you know, make you scratch your head. Like, well, he doesn't seem to be all bad. Right? So, so again, and, and we can, we'll go into those in a little bit with the, with the story of the bracha, because you'll see, in terms of the way he reacts, he reacts in a way that you, your, your heart breaks a little bit for him. So, so, so does that mean, so here's where, here's where um, you can get in trouble, though. And so I want to caution against this. You go, so therefore, since I'm now getting in touch with the humanity of the, caric- uh, of the, of the person, therefore, I'm questioning this, this idea of him being synonymous with the Yetzirah. So you have different paradigms. You can't undermine that paradigm. There is a paradigm where he remains the Yetzirah. So, so, so again, it just, if you want to be sophisticated, you just have to have multiple different files open at the same time. That, that's, the, that's the bottom line. You see? So, so, so anyway, so let's get to this story. So why is Yitzchak trying to, trying to give the bracha to Esav? So I saw Reb Shlomo say something very interesting which is that he knew that Yaakov was already serving God, and he knows Esav needs more help serving God, so give the bracha to Esav, he needs more help. <laughs> Very straightforward. Interesting, interesting. The problem with that is, the problem with that is, if I may say, is that there were so many long-term term implications for getting the bracha that we say, that it just that it it just makes that a little bit too simple. But I'm sure on its own level, that 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 that's legitimate. He just needed more help. Give him the bracha. Another thing that I heard is why is he sending him out to fetch him food before he gives him the bracha? Before Yitzchak gives him the bracha, he says, "Go out and get some food for me to eat. My favorite dish. Go and catch these goats." And by the way, you know, just the whole idea of the goats, let's just take a moment to just discuss that for a moment, because that's so deep. That's like crazy deep. Like he could have said anything. He could have said, you know, a cow. But he says goats. Why, why goats? All right. We're just going to touch the surface of this idea, but I just want to make you aware of it if you're not familiar with it. Interestingly, Yitzchak gives Yitzchak and Rivka give birth to Esav and, and Yaakov. Esav and Yaakov are twins. They're they're twins, okay. And as Rav Yitzchak Isaac Haver says, Yaakov has a certain supernatural quality to him, right? Because he's really remember Yaakov is going to wrestle with an angel later on in life and win, and get another name. Israel. So where does the name Israel come from? The whole name of the Jewish people is named Israel. Where does that come from? From this name that's given to Yaakov. So Yaakov has this like supernatural quality to it. But as Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver points out, 
he was in the womb at the same time, Esav was in the womb at the same time as Yaakov was, which means that Esav also has a supernatural quality to him. Right? So how do you be the counterbalance to the counterbalance? Esav is the counterbalance to Yaakov. How do you counterbalance something that's supernatural unless you also have a supernatural quality to you? This is already, you know, you have to, gives you, makes you shiver a little bit about Esav, right? Remember, there's only one power in the world, and that's God. But, you know, the, as Reb Shlomo said one time, the world, it's, it's beyond a works, it's more complicated than one plus one equals two. Okay, anyone who thinks the world functions on a one plus one equals two basis doesn't know the first thing about the way God is running the world. There's just like, there's just no shortage of X factors or the Z axis, if you like. It's just, it's just there, just there all the time. And we're looking at the world in this like very linear way. And, and the world is like dimensions upon dimensions folding in on top of each other. That's why mitzvahs are so great, by the way, because mitzvahs allow you to access other dimensions. It's not just in this dimension. You're able to reach beyond yourself into other dimensions by doing mitzvahs. That's why it's amazing. You know, Haman accused the Jews, it's a slander on the Jews, he says they go into their temple and they work magic. It's not magic. It's not magic. It's just we have through the mitzvahs. And by the way, all of the people of the world have mitzvahs. Remember, mitzvahs were not just given to the Jewish people. Every human being is a child of God, and every human being has the Sheva mitzvahs b'nei Noach, has the seven mitzvahs, and they are able to tap into the power of the mitzvahs, (coughs) just like the Jewish people are able to tap into the power of the mitzvahs. They also have mitzvahs. Everyone has mitzvahs. How can you not have mitzvahs? If the whole world is made out of mitzvahs, if the whole world was made out of the Torah, and every single person is therefore an aspect of the Torah, every single person has to have a share in the Torah, which means every single person, Jewish or non-Jewish, has to have mitzvahs. Do you understand? So, so anyway, so, so Rabbi Fassman was it was it was just I, I had a chance to talk to him a little bit. He he asked me, he asked me he wanted to he was thinking about this I guess. He said, oh, why did Yitzchak fetch send Esav out to get him something to eat? But before we get to that, I want to finish this this thing about the goats. So so the point of all that was that Yaakov and Esav are twins. Now listen to this. On Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur, we have a mitzvah, part of the forgiveness of the day. We have to get, in the Holy Temple, they would take two identical goats. (laughs) And by the way, while Yitzchak was telling Esav, go and get these goats for me, right? Rivka says to Yaakov, go and get some goats for me. We're going. And then Rivka dresses up Yaakov and disguises him like, so that he will appear to be like Esav, 
Again, keeping the theme of ident- identicalness together. But isn't it interesting that Rivka tells Yaakov, go get the goats. <laughs> just like Esav told, just like Yitzchak told Esav, go get the goats. In other words, it seems like she was doing everything else for him. Why not? She can go and get the goats. She's going to go and cook the food and everything as well. So these two goats in the base of Migdash, in the Holy Temple, they wanted to know which one, which one is going to be put on the altar of the base of Migdash, the Holy Temple, as part of the Yom Kippur sacrifice, and which one was going to be thrown off a cliff in the name of this, like, it's, it's, so, it's so intense, this Azazel. Yeah, like, like this, this, this very negative energy, this negative angelic energy, right? Which we are saying is synonymous with Esav. And that gets thrown off a cliff. And that's part of the Yom Kippur service. And by the way, this is even more intense. How would they decide when they had twin goats, which one is going to be put on the altar, which is the highest, and which one is going to be thrown off the cliff? So they had a box with two lottery things in it. And one of them, based on this lottery, you would decide which of these two identical goats would meet the highest fate or the lowest fate. Now listen to this. All right, now we're getting deeper. So Reb Shlomo said, I believe he said in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, if I were to ask you, what's the highest part of your body? I'm talking about physically, physically speaking. What is the highest part of your body? Most people would say the head, right? You just said the head. Okay, now watch. I just put my arms over my head. My hands reach higher than my head. You know what that means? That means that intuitively, you can go beyond your own mind through the work of your hands. <laughs> or sometimes God will, will direct you in a way which is beyond your thoughts. He'll direct your body. He'll direct your body to be in certain places. Well, why did you turn on that corner and then meet that friend from 10 years ago? I don't know. Why did you just decide to go into that store and then you met that person or that thing happened to you? I don't know. In other words, your body can sometimes be directed in ways that your mind can't even grasp. This is the idea of your hands above your head and they would, they would use their hands to select which of the lottery things and therefore which of the goats would go. In other words, God was directing them beyond their minds. So you have, you have this idea now that I'd like to say, but I'm, I'm sure many people have said it, on another level, that Yaakov and Esav are representing the body and the soul. That Esav, for obvious reasons, is representing the body. And Yaakov, 
Again, for obvious reasons, he was learning Torah. He was, it says he was, he was inside the tents learning Torah his whole life, right? Yaakov is, is representing the soul. And what's so interesting is, is that, and Rashi gives this, this, this bit of imagery, because we want to know who's the firstborn. Because the first child that, that exited uh, into the world of the two brothers from Rivka was Asaf. So by all rational thought, he would, have the, he would have the status of the firstborn, which means he would be entitled to certain blessings. And then comes Yaakov holding on to his foot. You see, you know what that's telling me? It's funny, it's just coming to me right now. Why can't he just be following after him? Why does he have to be holding on to his foot? Do you know why? Because God is telling us that the body and the soul are one unit, not two separate ideas. Do you understand? If Yaakov just came out after Esav as a separate birth, then you would say, you know what? Physicality, materiality is one idea, and spirituality is a completely separate idea, and maybe the two never go together. But God said something much deeper. He said, no, 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 no. They're one in the same. 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 And you see, that is the Jewish idea that the body and the soul are supposed to be best friends. But what we experience during our life for the most part is that our soul and our body are at war with each other. And of course, Yaakov and Esav are at war with each other. Or maybe more to the point, I think more fairly, Esav is at war with Yaakov. But there's an aspect to Esau, there's an aspect to the body. See, and why are the body and the soul best friends, just so you understand? Because the soul can't do mitzvahs in this world without a body. Right? If you want to give tzedakah, you have to have a hand to pass it to another hand. There are no mitzvahs, really, as we understand them, unless you have a body. So the soul needs the body in order to do mitzvahs. The body needs the soul in order to be a living thing. Otherwise, the body is just earth, right? Like Adam, which means a person. Adam comes from the word Adama, which means just ground, just earth. It's nothing. So the soul needs the body, and the body needs the soul. But the way we experience it and the way we see it played out in the Torah with Yaakov and Esav is that they're, they're at each other's throats. But now let's get back to the humanity of Esav for a moment. So we know the whole story that Yaakov disguises himself as Esav and, 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 and Yaakov gets the brocha, not Esav, and and Yitzchak then realizes 
that Yaakov was always supposed to have the bracha, and then Yitzchak gives Yaakov a bracha again, affirming it from a conscious state right now, because before he was beyond consciousness, he was in a place beyond consciousness, right, which is like the hands above the head, he was beyond consciousness, Then he reaffirms it from a place of consciousness. And then Esav, who had sold his birthright when he was younger to Yaakov, and he says, I'm going to die anyway. What do I need this for? You take it. And he sells it for what? For food? Right? Like, what, what could be more the body speaking? Right? That's the, that's the embodiment, so to speak, of him being the body. Is, is that he says, he says, who needs this spiritual idea, the firstborn? What, I'm dying anyway. Who needs it? Give me food. Uh, food is something I understand. But then listen to this, and it broke my heart when I saw this. It broke my heart. Asa then comes in with all the food that he's caught from his, for his father. And, 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 and Yitzchak says, who are you? And Esav, listen to how Esav introduces himself. This is right in the Torah. He says, I am Esav, your firstborn. You see, one of the things that I was taught, that Yitzchak was waiting for Esav to do tshuva, was waiting for him to get his act together and to become a mensch. And he was waiting... You know, sometimes, this is, again, another psychological principle, another tool, if you will, is that sometimes you can make someone more responsible. Like, let's say you, there's someone in your life who's not responsible, and you want to teach them how to be more responsible. You give them responsibility, and you rely on them for something, right? You have to be careful with this, because you can't set yourself up to get yourself in trouble. But you... You, you give them a responsibility and the giving them of a responsibility in itself makes them more responsible because then they have the opportunity to be responsible and then they can take it and become more responsible. Okay? But you have to be very wise in terms of how you apply that. So if you apply that idea to this context, Yitzchak is giving him the ultimate responsibility. He says, you are going to be... <clears throat> the spiritual successor of Avraham, Yitzchak. Now go and hunt this food and bring it back to me. He's giving him the opportunity to take seriously, for the first time perhaps, what family he's been born into, what his destiny could be as the firstborn, which he's traded away. And now he says, wait a second, I don't want to trade it away anymore. I don't want to trade it away anymore. I want to take it seriously. I want to be worthy of this blessing. And so he walks in and Yitzhak says, who are you? And he says, I am Esav, your firstborn. Seen in that context, here's a person who's at least trying to do tshuva. If you read it in this way, if you read it in this way. That's for me, by the way. I haven't seen that elsewhere. I'm just telling you that so you can keep these sources straight. Um, But I want to say something else, something maybe more meaningful. 
Because again, Esav never leaves the category of being the Yetzirah as a spiritual idea. But now we're trying to track his humanity within this story, right? But we're also doing another idea at the same time, which is the idea of Esav as the body. And now, Esav as the body, our bodies are going to be in sync with our souls. That is the Jewish understanding of our destiny. In other words, this gap, this giant gap that appears in terms of our perception that you have a material world and it's empty of morality, it's empty of God, it's empty of everything, right? That illusion is going to be shattered because God, again, is as present here as he is in the higher realms. He's just more concealed. Just like the body conceals the soul, God is more concealed. But the body is going to come around. Physicality and, 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 and spirituality are going to become united. We know that the, the Yetzirah is going to be shechted. Right? That means that this, um, this illusion that we have that we're independent of God is going to disappear. You see, this is why every single thing that we ever do wrong goes back to Adam and Chava eating from the tree of knowledge. Because when Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge, they were tricked by the snake. The snake said, do you know why God doesn't want you to eat from the tree of knowledge? Because if you eat from the tree of knowledge, you're going to become a power like God. And God doesn't want any more rivals. God just wants to run the show by himself. And if you eat, you're going to be like God. That's why God doesn't want you to eat. So, According to this understanding, this is from the Ramchal in Dust Funas. The test to Adam and Chava and to all of us every single day, 24-7, to all of us every day, is, is there such a thing that there can be more than one power than God? You see, the snake was so tricky because in his saying, you know what's going to happen, you're going to become another power like, wait, no, the whole premise of that statement was false. There is no power other than God. You can eat all you like. It won't do you any good. But the phrasing of the snake was so brilliantly deceptive because he incorporated in the question a false premise, something that was never true to begin with. He said, if you eat, You know why God doesn't want you to eat? Because if you eat, you're going to become a power just like God. Don't you want to become a power just like God? He just doesn't want you to because then he's, you know, there's more people at the table. So every time we go through life, we have every moment of our life, another moment of being Adam or Chava by the tree of knowledge with the snake, which is, who is the ultimate authority? Am I being just like a nice guy? Like really, I'm the power. 
Really, I'm the power. But I'm being a nice guy by listening to God. But it's really, God, it's really, it's, it's really me. I'm creating you. And at this moment, I'm being nice to you. Or there's only you. <laughs> and this idea of me is an illusion. <laughs> and who is it? Who am I to imagine a me that can never go against you? All right. If you want to arrive at this, for all of us, it's, this is a lifetime's worth of work. And obviously we'll have our good days and our bad days. But the, the, first, the, the, the first step is understanding that there's, that there's, only, that there's only one power. There's only one power. And to also understand that days are coming, like in the words of the prophets, days are coming where our body and our soul are going to unite. That's what it says, that's what it says by Techiasamesim, by the resurrection of the dead, you know? People wonder, is that well that's not a Jewish concept, right? That's that's got that's another sounds like another religion. They they got that from us, guys. Hello? Hello? The resurrection of the dead, mass resurrection of the dead, is, is Judaism 101. People don't talk about it all the time because maybe they'll think you're crazy or something like that. You know? But we've, we've gone into it before, you know? There's already science is catching up to it. They're taking fossils and bringing life forms back. I mean, there's many examples of, 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 of where we already see the beginnings of it today. But, but that's, that's not the point. The point is, is that we envision a point where the body and the soul work seamlessly together. And that's the destiny of humanity. <laughs>